Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Beware the Dangers of Self-Righteousness. chapter 2. Now, uh, today we're specifically going to study verse 1. We're going to read a little bit more to get the context of what's going on. So we're going to read the first six verses. If you, uh, on your own, kind of read through the whole chapter, some of the things we're going to talk about today are going to help kind of introduce and understand the theme and the message of what's going on through this whole section here. But we'll begin in verse 1. So Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read it, then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Verse 1. After a message really hammering down on the awfulness of the sins of idolatry, atheism, paganism, describing the sins of the world and the the wrath of God that is coming against them, then comes chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Let's bow together and ask for God's grace. Oh, holy God. Oh, God who made the snow. Oh, God of all beauty, all glory, All that is wonderful comes from you. Lord, we come to you right now and God, we ask for your blessing. Father, we bow beneath you in worship. We want to hear your word. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed. We want you to speak. We want your word to be illumined to us. So please, God, give us supernatural help in this time, oh God, that we can understand your truths and be changed by it. Show us more of your glory, and God, show us your will for our lives. Father, we know that there are times in your word where it's not the happiest of subjects, but we need to see our sin in order to understand ourselves and understand the gospel and understand you and understand the glory of what you've done in Christ. And so, God, I pray that today will be one of those days, that, God, you expose sin, uh, you show us our hearts, God, I pray that you call to mind some of those ways that we need to repent. And Lord, if there is any here that has not yet responded to Christ, not yet turned from their sins to look to Christ in faith to be saved, God, I pray that today would be the day that their new life begins. Please bring that about. Help me to preach, not to 
mess, mess up, not say stupid things, unhelpful things, offensive things, any, anything that is in error, but only what's right, true, and helpful, God. So please bless this time. Give us hearts that receive your word. Glorify your name. And we pray all this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a young children's book called Blotch. And within this book, there's a story about a people who every time they sin, a new stain, an ugly blemish appears on their skin. Amongst this people, there's a young boy. His name is Blotch, where the book gets its name. And he begins to be heartbroken over the stains, over the the defiling uncleanness that he sees uh, coming onto his skin. He, He finds that no matter how hard he tries, He's not able to stop new stains from coming on him. He's never able to erase the old stains from his body. And so the young boy, heartbroken, comes to his parents and he says, I want to find a remedy. I want to find a way to be cleansed. And so he sets out on a journey. He decides he's going to travel through the whole kingdom until he finds answers. How can I be cleansed? Along the way on his journey, he comes to one city called Pointerville. He encounters some of the residents of Pointerville and he tells them what he is seeking, an answer for the stains that are on him. And one of the men respond to him, I can tell you where your stains come from. It's those people over there. And then after he talks to those people over there, he finds they're pointing to those people over there. He knows that's not really where the stains are coming from. He finds no answers. He continues on and he comes to a place called Pretend Town. In pretend town, he encounters uh, some of the residents and he tells them that he is seeking for his stains to be removed. And one of the men then says to him, stains? What stains? I don't know what you're talking about. Blotz replies to him, well, I'm covered in them and you are covered with them all as well. They're all over your body. To which the man insists, I most certainly have no stains in my life. These stains you speak of don't even really exist. Blotch sees the deceitful game being played there. He also comes to a place called Hyderville. When he walks into the streets of Hyderville, he is elated because he sees the people that have no stains on them whatsoever. He's jumping up and down thinking, this is it. This is where I will find the answers of how to get rid of my stains. So he runs up to one of the men and he says, you have no stains. And he's a little surprised by the man's unpleasantness when he responds, well, of course I have no stains. As they begin to chat for a little while, a rain cloud forms and all the people of Hyderville begin to run out of the streets. He wonders why they're so nervous about just a little rain and then he sees the answer as the rain falls and the makeup that the residents of Hyderville have used to cover up their blemishes runs off of them. Well, in the conclusion of the book, I'll tell you a little bit of what happens there. Blotch finds the king of the kingdom and he finds that this king is willing to take his stains upon himself, go to a cross and die in his place and thereby be cleansed. Blotch rejoices, spends the rest of his life telling everyone else where they can be cleansed. But I want to come back to this Hyderville for a moment. That place where the residents hide and cover up their sins with religiosity, and faking a good game. In Romans chapter 2, 
God uses the pen of Paul to address primarily the residents of Hyderville. As we walk through chapter one, when we were walking through and we were looking at the fact that the wrath of God is coming, has already begun to come on the earth, we looked at the, the dark sins of idolatry, atheism, all forms of paganism and false religion that were there. As we were looking through some of those things, if you remember, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty exacting so much so that some of the Sundays as I was reading over notes to how to explain this, I was thinking, man, any visitors who are here today, this is gonna feel real condemning to their souls. But listen to me, rightly so. What Romans 1 does, it does address the idolater, the atheist, and the pagan to show that these sins really are terrible. They're dark. They're ugly before God. Listen, it's also for us Christians to understand why those things are such dark crimes. But here's one of the, here's one of the things we got to keep in mind. If we are not careful, something really dangerous can happen when we're talking about sins that aren't ours. In fact, the Holy Spirit and Paul were banking on it. We're banking on it happening to some. See, when a preacher stands up in a church and starts to rail against some of those sins that you know aren't real common amongst church folk, they're, they're the kind that are outside the walls, there's something kind of ugly that can happen. Start to get nodding your head. Yeah, you tell them, preacher. You can kind of start to ho start hollering out all the amens as we talk about sins that we don't struggle with, but the room gets quieter whenever we start to hit a little closer to home and start to address some of the sins that are common to us. Something similar is happening here, and God did it on purpose. God on purpose carried along in talking about sins of the nations, and there is a kind of heart there is a kind of attitude that can really start to just get a grimace on the face, a smug and superior feeling in the heart and start to be like, yeah, Paul, you tell them. And then do you see what happens in verse one of chapter two? The bony finger of the apostle Paul points at us and he says, you also are without excuse. And all of what happens in chapter two then is a way of addressing the religious man. And, and in the uh, first century times, where as there was the distinction and some of the difficulties that were going on between the Jew and the Gentile, chapter two is primarily addressed to the Jewish audience, to the religious audience. And we will find there's an awful lot of application for us as well. So we're gonna walk through this verse. We're gonna try to go to the bottom, drink up everything we possibly can. Uh, I'm gonna do it in three main points. First, we're gonna look at the audience, who this is primarily written to. Secondly, we're gonna look at why it is the case that those who judge or we who judge condemn ourselves. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at the danger of self-righteousness. So the audience, they who judge condemn themselves. And then lastly, the danger of self-righteousness. So let's get started here. Let's begin with this audience. This is gonna help us kind of understand really the book itself. Throughout chapter one, scripture was exposing the sins of the nations. 
the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles. And if you're new to studying the Bible, the Gentiles refer to all of those people groups that are not Jewish. So all of the sins of the nations of the earth. Because one of the things scripture shows is that throughout history, every people group, every nation of the earth has at some time drifted into the false religion of paganism. You follow your ancestry back far enough, you will come to idolatry. You will come to a time where your people, your ancestors engaged in this paganism. This is true of all of the earth. And as God was showing the wickedness of those things, you can imagine the the Jewish reader. You can imagine the, the highly religious reader, but who doesn't understand the gospel. That's a caveat helpful to understand through this. You can imagine the Jewish reader following along, talking about the Gentiles and agreeing with Paul and thinking superior kinds of legalistic thoughts. And here in verse one, if the legalist has kind of been carried along by this kind of thinking, then there is this turn that begins to show the guilt, exposing the sin of the religious man. But before we go any further, let me kind of help define what legalism is, the legalist. We're going to use kind of some of these terms, self-righteousness, legalism. A legalist is someone who relies upon law keeping for their righteousness and thinks they have done it. So a legalist is someone who looks at all of religion and only thinks in terms of rules to keep and then kind of thinks... I've, I've accomplished this and feels impressed with themselves. And it produces some ugly things in the heart. It produces self-righteousness. See, friends, the gospel is all about God offering to us a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. The gospel declares that none of us can be right before God by our own obedience, by our own good works, by our own law keeping. No amount of good deeds or religious works that we could ever do will make us right before God. So the gospel offers us a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. It's not yours, it's Christ. Christ imputed to us. Self-righteousness is when I begin to feel pretty impressed with myself. It's when I begin to think highly of myself, have these spiritually arrogant kinds of thoughts, and I begin to believe I make myself right before God. In its worst form, there's the Pharisee. And we'll talk more later about that group. But understand, friends, there are also lighter versions of it. There's even a Christian version of it. There's a Christian version of it that happens inside of churches. The Christian version of it goes something like this. It understands the gospel that in order to be saved, I, may, I can only be saved by the grace of God through faith and not my works. But then once I am saved, it begins to look at all of the Christian life only in terms of rules I can keep and it begins to feel superior over others. It begins to develop that judgmental condemning hearts and enjoys finding the faults of others. Begins to develop a keen eye for other people's weaknesses and sins while being blind to my own. So friends, one one of the things we got to keep in mind is, is this. Even though we understand the gospel, there are ways we can still slip into a legalistic heart 
with a legalistic kind of attitude. And so this section is going to have some things that are helpful to us to expose some of that in our heart as well. But as we look through this, then we can ask the question, who is Paul addressing here? Is he writing to the unconverted legalist? Is he writing to the the born again Christian? Because I thought this letter was written to the Christians at Rome. But if you look down at verse three of this passage and down then to, uh, to some of these other places, verse five, he says, because of your stubbornness, and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That's not speaking to a Christian. So who's being addressed here? Who's the audience? Well, we're going to see that various parts of Romans are addressed more specifically to all kinds of different groups. This is what scripture does a lot. So it's kind of like Sunday mornings when I preach, I am primarily addressing the Christians of this church family. Primarily but there is also the call that is given to the unconverted. We try to apply in every single way. When you look at Jesus's preaching, you'll see him doing that constantly. He'll be addressing the disciples. And then in kind of a side note, he'll give a call to the lost to come to him. The book of Romans will do this several times. The book of Romans is going to in some way address every soul, every kind of person that is out there. It's primarily written to the Christian but it addresses every group. And then let me say a couple more things that are gonna help us kind of understand this whole book. Chapter two here is primarily written to address the Jewish audience, the Jewish hearers. If you're in chapter two, look over at verse 17, for instance. Look look what he says there. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will, and then he continues on to describe the, the Jewish audience. When you come to chapter 11, In verse 13, if you were to look there, one of the things that will be said is, but I speak to you who are Gentiles. And I believe what he means there is that section is primarily addressed to Gentiles. So in different places, he's going to address the Jewish Christian or the Jewish non-Christian, the Gentile Christian or the Gentile non-Christian. We all get included. But listen to this. We all need all of it. We all need to know what each part says in this. Because bear this in mind. This new thing was happening with the gospel. The walls of division are broken down in Christ between the Jew and the Gentile. And for the first time in history, as the gospel began to go forth, God was now giving the instruction that the Jewish believers were to welcome and embrace the Gentile believers But it is also helpful for us to understand a whole lot of chapters of the Bible will kind of light bulb come on if we understand this as well. Most of the Jews believed. Most of the Jews believed. We've got writings left over from the first century and such. We know there were phrases that were repeated. Most of the Jews believed every Jew will be in heaven and every Gentile will be in hell. That was a common belief. They even had these phrases that they repeated of things like, God loves the Jew alone. God's going to judge the nations. They believe that God's covenant with Abraham made every Jewish person safe. Now, if you can grasp that, 
Think in your head a whole lot of the things Jesus says start to make more sense, starts to make more sense why Ephesians 3 and in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all going to be about this, this whole difficulty and division between the Jewish man and the Gentile man. When Jesus came to the people and he said, don't boast that Abraham is your father. God can make these stones sons of Abraham. That doesn't get you eternal life. This is part of what's going on in some of the background behind all of those things. So bearing that in mind, bearing in mind that even Jewish Christians struggled with this whole Gentiles being saved thing, God is now going to do this. God is going to show the religious man and the Jewish man. Just as the Gentile is unclean and needs salvation, you are unclean and you need salvation. This whole difficulty existed. See, friends, in the book of Acts, it is something kind of astounding. Even the apostles, the apostles have a conversation at one point after some Gentiles turned to Christ to be saved. And they kind of have this conversation where they go, is this supposed to be happening? Um, can these guys really be saved? I didn't think it was going to work like this. Even after three and a half years of walking with Jesus, they still struggled with this hold that it's possible for Gentiles to be saved. You got to think of a Jewish man who turns to Christ for the first time, that first Lord's day, he shows up to worship with the church and he sees a Gentile over in the corner. He thinks in his head, I'm sitting by that guy. All of this difficulty and tension was in there. And so here's the genius. The genius of what God is going to do is God shows this. Jew and Gentile, both, both are unclean before God. And our only hope is the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. That goes for Jew and for Gentile. And here is the way that he will point the finger to help the religious of us, the Jewish audience, feel the fact that we need the grace and the blood of Christ just as much as any soul on the planet. So all of that will help us understand all of chapter two. Secondly, you who judge condemn yourselves. Paul points to the religious man there in verse two and he says, do you see the words? You have no excuse. And here's some of the significance of that. Do you remember back in chapter one in verse 20? You can look over there real quick as the sins of idolatry, atheism, and rejecting the one true God were being talked about and the fact that all of creation shows the glory of God, like snow shows the glory of God, shows the creator. All of this was being talked about and then this statement was made, therefore you have no excuse. Well, here we are in chapter two, verse one, and to the religious man, to the Jewish man, it is said as well, you also are without excuse. In other words, there will be no way that you can stand before God and say, well, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't understand these things. I didn't know that my sin was bad. I thought their sin was bad. And here's what he says. Here is how you have no excuse. You who judge practice the same things and you condemn yourself by your judging of others. So how is that the case? How is it the case that if we, in a self-righteous way, judge others, that we turn a finger on ourselves? Let me suggest three ways to you. Number one, even if you do not practice the same action as those that you judge, 
you are declaring this by the fact that you're judging and shaming and thinking these thoughts in your heart. You are acknowledging sin is bad. Sin is to be judged. Sin is ugly. Sin is shameful. And you have sin. May not be the same kind. It may be different actions. Like the church kid who's raised inside of the walls and never goes out and parties and gets drunk. They may be tempted to look at some of their classmates with a, with a condemning kind of eye and just really look down on them in sort of the way of like, you're definitely going to hell, but then have the thought in their minds, but not me because I'm really good and I've never done any of that. What scripture shows is the fact that you are calling out sin in your hearts is recognizing you know sin to be bad. And though you may have different sin, you have sin and your sin deserves to be judged. Secondly, we participate in sins of the same categories as those that we judge. You may not have ever murdered, but you have hated in your heart and you have participated in deeds of hatred. And no matter how much we tell ourselves, well, that's not the same. That's not the same. Mine's not really the bad. The God who rules the sky, the God who is the ultimate judge you will answer to says all sins in that category are worthy of death. If you don't believe me, let's go look. Matthew chapter five over in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I believe there's a lot of connection between the Sermon on the Mount and what is said here in this chapter. And I, I think some of that will be clear as we, as we go through and say some more things here. Matthew chapter five, find verse 21. Here's what Jesus preaches and says. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus shows that every sin in that category is worthy of death. You may not have ever committed a great and grievous sexual sin, but no matter how much you may try to tell yourself that your lust or your pornography or your thoughts, they're not really all that bad. The ultimate judge says all sins within that category are worthy of death. In fact, the Bible shows all sins in every category are worthy of death. So if we judge others, we may not have committed the full extent and magnitude of a certain kind, but we have committed sins within that category. And then thirdly, back in Romans chapter one, if you look at verses 28 to 31, which we had studied at the end of chapter one there, and you look through that list, as many of the evils of the world just begin to get rattled off and, and they're listed out there, can you really say that you are clean? You cannot say that you are truly clean from all of these things. Can you really say you've never felt greed? Can you really say you've never envied? Never caused strife? Never said a word of gossip? Never been angry? Never boasted one time? Can you really say you have always been trustworthy, always been loving, always been merciful? Of course not. Every person is going to engage in those evils. But you may say, well, I've, what little I've done is not the same as all of those. Will, consider a couple things. 
One is, as we were reading that list of sins, the legalist would have been in his mind going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You thought of them in their ugliest form and you nodded your head. Your form might be lighter, but you've still engaged. And then also consider this. Little town of St. Anthony just up the road, just in this past week has witnessed a horrific murder that took place. Uh, the accused is a man who is 27 years old. He has lived on this earth for approximately 9,850 days and on only one did he commit murder. Do you see the insanity of trying to explain away our sins by saying, well, I'm mostly good. If you track that man's life, you would see days of good. You would see a multitude of good deeds that he did and such, but that doesn't undo a crime. We cannot before God claim to be mostly good, mostly obedient, mostly righteous, and then therefore fine before God. Our sins, even though your sins might be less than others, there might not be the full magnitude of wrath coming on you that would come on others. You still have sin. I still have sin. My sin deserves wrath. We are in need of a grace outside of ourselves. We are in need of something that is greater than what I can perform and what I can achieve. What we need is the grace, the righteousness, the blood, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. It is the grace of God and not God giving you what you owe. You don't want what you are owed. You want the mercy that God offers. Listen to me, friends. No human will ever enter heaven because they didn't deserve wrath. The only way we will enter is by our wrath being spent on Christ. No human will ever enter the kingdom because they had no stains. We will only enter by our stains being cleansed, which happens when we are united to Christ. And this is, this is a message that especially the self-righteous need to hear. That the same sin that defiles the immoral man, it also lives in my heart. Yes, the self-righteous church man, he may have kept his actions under better control than maybe the one that they're judging. But the same sins live in the heart, the same poison. And therefore, the wrath that is owed will come, the same corruption that makes the worst of the people you can think of in your minds and the worst of the actions you can think of, the corruption that is in your heart is the same kind of corruption that lives in others. We have to see that our only hope is grace, forgiveness. We are all in need of Christ. And God means Romans 2 to be a way that the self-righteous religious man who didn't think he needs Christ by the time he's done is to be feeling greatly, I need Christ. I have no righteousness on my own. My only hope is the rescue of God. So number three, let's, let's think a little bit on this self-righteousness. Let's think a little bit on most specifically applying this to us and things that we need to guard against and watch. In the parable of the prodigal son, most everybody is familiar with that account. It's been called the greatest five minutes of storytelling in history. I think I agree. 
But as you, as you think of that parable, there's a part that we all kind of jump to, but there's a part that is often forgotten. When you think of the parable, you probably remember that the, uh, the, the wicked son brazenly asked for his inheritance now. He runs off, he squanders it all. He comes to misery. Then he comes to his senses. He repents and he comes back to the father. And I definitely hope you remember the part where the father is watching. The father runs to his son, throws his arms around his son, rejoices, and there is celebration. I hope you remember that because it's the main point of the parable. Heaven rejoices at the repentance of sinners. But Jesus keeps going. There's another part to the parable. The part that is often kind of forgotten is in order to further teach that main point, heaven rejoices over the repentance of sinners. Jesus describes that the prodigal had an older brother. And you remember what the older brother does when the father makes over his son. That older brother gets angry, scowls, feels sorry for himself. He goes off on his own to kind of sulk and then the father comes to him and the father sort of asks you, why are you so upset? And the son, the older brother responds, well, dad, I'm the good kid. I'm the one who's here all the time obeying you. I've done what you want. I, didn't, I wasn't the one who went out there. Why are you making over this guy right here? And Jesus is showing something there. Jesus is exposing the wicked heart of the scribes, the Pharisees, and all of the self-righteous down through the ages who don't like it when the wicked receive forgiveness, who don't like it when the prodigals come home and get made over and heaven rejoices there. And friends, the same kind of evil can live in us. In Matthew 23, there's a section where Jesus pronounces woes on the scribes and Pharisees. A woe is the opposite of a blessing. So when Jesus says things like, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God, he's pronouncing this blessing. A woe is the opposite. A woe is pronouncing a curse. And in Matthew 23, you've got this long section where Jesus pronounces these curses, these woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. He says things like, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You offer long prayers but the only reason you do so is so that you'll sound holy to others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe your herbs. Now, now under, understand this part. When you grow herbs, you might grow them in like a little bitty pot like this. Well, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were so much about law, 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 that if they cut the mint out of a little flower pot of herbs, they made sure they measured out a tenth. And, and by the way, Jesus says, that is good. So don't misunderstand here what he's saying, but here is the problem. As they would measure out their tithe, they would feel so superior. And Jesus says, you'd walk to the temple to go offer your tithe. And along the way, you would walk right past an oppressed widow in need and you felt nothing. Oh, but you tithed your mint. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He says, you clean the outside of the cup but you let the inside remain foul. He's referring to their hearts. Woe to you hypocrites, you lengthen your tassels. Now, a tassel was actually an instruction that God gave in the law of Moses 
that he told them that they were to wear sort of these things off of their belts. And it was meant to be a daily reminder to keep the word of God, keep the commandments that God gave. So God gave an instruction, but what they did is they, they made these tassels that were real long, that flowed when they walked so they could call attention to themselves. Kind of like maybe wearing a bracelet with a Bible verse on your hand to remind you of some scripture you want to wear. The basic premise is good, but then if you start, you know, making sure your hand's out there so people can see your Bible verse, calling attention to your religious attire or calling religion to these external deeds so that everybody can see them. Jesus says, okay, yeah, you lengthen your tassels. You called attention to your religious clothing, but you have not one time humbled your heart before your God. You do not live unto him and you do not serve others. He says, you love your titles. You love when you're recognized at feast. You love how your position puts you in power. You love to sit at the high places honor, but you never humble yourself before God. This is the legalist, the self-righteousness. And even though you may not wear tassels or tithe mint, we have our own ways in our own day that we can do religion to show that we can do religion to call attention to ourselves rather than just to serve God. In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached in all of history, Jesus spends some serious time addressing this false religion. In fact, it will help us to understand the Sermon on the Mount to realize that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is painting a picture to show here is what true religion looks like. And in that day, legalism was the norm. In that day, the kind of false religion of showy religion, it was the norm. And so Jesus addresses it several times. And to quote John MacArthur here, here are two more grave errors that self-righteous legalistic religion um, perform. Number one, they lower the standard of God. And number two, they exalt themselves in their own eyes up to the standard. So they take God's law and they reduce it down to just my list, the things, the things that I think are right. And then they elevate themselves in their own eyes. And when you know that, the Sermon on the Mount starts to make a lot more sense. Do you remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said some things like, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. You are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, who can do that? Exactly. We need grace. Grace is what, it, is what we are to rely on and understand that like the thief on the cross, as I consider him, though my sin is as vile as he, I can be washed by the blood of Christ. Jesus goes on to teach that true religion is internal and external. Yes, it is to labor to do good deeds. You gotta, you gotta watch out. There are these movements within Christianity that confront hypocrisy and self-righteousness and they'll do it like this. So let's just get rid of all rules. Let's just get rid of all restraint and let's just all just be wild and crazy. That's not what the Bible teaches either, okay? We are called to work hard. We are called to obey and to pray and to give and to fast. We're called to these things, but we're called to do it in a way that is all about serving God and not attention to ourselves. Jesus says, when you pray, don't go out to the street corner. I know that would be weird today, but in first century Israel, 
a culture that prized religious devotion. The Pharisees would walk to street corners and would offer up long prayers that sounded really holy. Jesus says, go to your closet and pray where nobody but God can see you. And your father who sees what in secret will reward you. And then in brilliance, Jesus follows that up by saying, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Here's what he means by that. It's possible to go into your closet by yourself and nobody, any, nobody see you and to think, man, I bet nobody else prays like this. And to really be impressed with ourselves. We are always in danger of elevating ourselves to feel superior. And so Jesus says, don't let yourself admire yourself. Serve God. Walk humbly before your God. Friends, we live with a real danger. Church folk, you who came out on a Sunday in the snow, we have dangers. When we begin to take our faith seriously, Satan didn't want that to happen. He tried to stop it. He lost. But now that you're taking your faith seriously, he's going to try to do this. He's going to try to corrupt your faith by elevating you in your own minds. We have to know there's a danger. Listen, let me tell you one of the groups that live in a great deal of danger of this kind of thing. It is church kids. It is pastor's kids. There's a real danger. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. You are given the greatest gift you can possibly give to your children. I am not exaggerating. The greatest gift you can give to your children to give them the gospel, a home that loves God and a lifestyle that honors him. Give it to them. But we also have to be careful that we not create an environment and a way of thinking and a way of talking that implies we think we are better than others because there's a danger that can come. Legalism and self-righteousness, they're ugly. It is ugly. And let me tell you what usually happens when children are brought up in that kind of environment. Usually what happens is the first chance the kids get to get on their own, by golly, they go crazy. Run wild away, run away from this oppressive religion that my parents made me feel. Christian colleges see this all the time. Finally getting out from under mom and dad's hypocritical, self-righteous wing. And then they just run wild and it's ugly. They oftentimes become antagonists of the gospel. They oftentimes go around telling everybody how awful Christians are. The sad part is they might not have met a true Christian their entire childhood. But they think this is what Christianity is and they run away from it. That's one danger. Self-righteousness, legalism, this kind of attitude, it destroys marriages. In fact, I think I would say that within the church, amongst church people, I think I have seen more divorces from self-righteousness than from any other cause, and that includes adultery. That's not a national study, but that is what these eyes have seen. It's ugly, but there's another danger. The other danger is if we create this kind of environment in ourselves and in our families and in our church, we might raise up kids who love it. We might raise the greatest Pharisee that ever lived because there is a kind of pleasure that the flesh can feel in exalting myself over others and judging. We are in danger of going to this and we have to watch our hearts 
parents, we have to watch our hearts. Let, let me tell you this right now. Us pastors, leaders within the church, this is, this is kind of an inherent danger that comes with any title or position of leadership. It is a regular temptation that pastors face to become exalted in their own hearts. When you pray for your church leaders, and you are right because scripture tells you to, when you pray for us, pray that God would rescue us from pride. I'd appreciate it if you'd ask him to be gentle when he does it because he has saved me from pride in the past and it hurts. But this is a real danger. When we take our faith seriously, we can begin to feel exalted. So we must guard our hearts. We got to do it today and then we got to keep doing it. But what happens if we talk about this today and you see it in yourself? What happens is as we've been looking through these things, this has been really convicting to you. What then? Well, let me suggest that maybe the first thing that you need to realize is that there has been a misunderstanding of the gospel. Not so much, so I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and struggle with this, but there is a misunderstanding of the gospel that doesn't feel the weight of the grace of God. God didn't save you because you were great. God saved you by grace. God saved you in spite of yourself. God saved you in your and mine uncleanness. What I deserve is to burn and the grace of God is offered. And we got to read scripture with new eyes, paying attention to those places that show my uncleanness and my need of grace. And to you who have never turned to Christ, to, to you who have not yet responded to the gospel. I know it's a common belief in our culture that sin is no big deal and God's just gonna let everybody in. But what I am telling you is the Bible very clearly says something different. Your sins deserve wrath just like mine do. But God has provided a payment. God has made a way for you to be cleansed, your stains, your blemishes to be erased and you to be right before God. It is his son, Jesus Christ, but you must come to him. You must turn from your rebellion, look to Christ in faith and call out to him. When you do this, scripture says you will be embraced by God, cleansed before him. We all come from different places. There are some souls who think I've done too much evil that God will never take me. And then there are souls who think I'm so great I don't need salvation. Wherever it is you're coming from, we are all unclean, all in need of forgiveness, all in need of salvation, and it is only in Christ. Call out to him. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for loving us in grace. Thank you, God, for setting your love on us when we didn't deserve it. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you came to us in our filth, in our uncleanness, in our unworth, and you have mercifully drawn us. God, I, I pray for our church family. I wanna pray, Lord, that we will be an obedient people, that we will work hard, we will serve, we will go hard. But God, I pray, save us and rescue us from a self-righteous pride. Deliver us from a way of hypocrisy and looking at ourselves as superior. Help our hearts, oh God. Bring us to understand the gospel. 
We pray for your safety and blessing as we leave. We ask for grace over the rest of our church family who was not able to be here today. Please give safety over these next few days. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Help us to live as your people and glorify your name in us, to us, and through us, oh God. We pray all this through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Beware the Dangers of Self-Righteousness. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.